Good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning, and uh, thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary. For those that are gathered for Cross Point at home, thank you for inviting us into your living room, dining room, wherever you're tuning in from, and thanks for yeah, being part of the church uh, community. Friends, it's good to be able to, to gather. Thanks for being here as well on this holiday weekend. If you're somebody that is new to Crosspoint and we've never been introduced, my name is Jamie and it is a great privilege and joy of mine to be uh, one of the pastors, one of the elders here. And it's my privilege to open up uh, God's word with you all. We began a uh, new series uh, for this fall. It's a series that's gonna run through uh, the beginning of the story of the scriptures. And so it's looking at Genesis chapter one through Genesis 11. And that is gonna be about a 15 week series taking us all the way to Advent. And so this is week three of this series that we've entitled Creation and Chaos, Our Origin Story. And friends, if we want to know like what it looks like to live like right here, right now, faithfully to be the church, what it looks like to have purpose and, and meaning, what it looks like to connect relationally, what it looks like to do our, our work that the Lord has called us to, like all of these things, right? They didn't just sprout up randomly, like they're all contained in the opening pages of the scriptures. And in it, we see a story of creation and we see also the chaos that comes. But thankfully, we are part of this bigger story of this new creation, this new work that God is doing. And we get to be part of that together as the church. But it's so important that we go back and look at our origins. And so last week, uh, we looked at Genesis chapter one, the first 25 verses or so, uh, which is the creation account, the days of creation where, you know, God said, let there be light and there was light, all right? And then uh, you have the day one, and you kind of have this repeated pattern that goes through the six days of creation. But if you were here last week, you know that I said, hey, we're gonna stop partway through day six because there's so much that the rest of day six speaks to in regards to the creation of us, of, of humanity, of your neighbor, of the person sitting next to you and in front of you, behind you, the people you interact with all the time. Day six speaks specifically of that. And so we left that for this week. And so I wanna invite you to turn now to Genesis chapter one. We're gonna look at verses 26 to 31. So this is picking up the rest of day six, all right? And so if you have a Bible, please turn there. There are Bibles in the pews this morning. You can turn there, literally just go to page one and you will, you will find it. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please take that one home uh, with you as a gift. Also, you can scan the QR code that's in the pew and that'll bring up a menu that just, there's a tab you can click that says sermon notes and so the text will be there as well as any of the notes and things that are put up on, on the screen. So if you are able, I wanna invite you, please stand as I read God's word this morning. Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we get into these wonderful verses, I mean, these verses, if we understand these things, oh my goodness, they are loaded with so much beauty and significance that help us grapple with a couple of key questions. Because one question I wanna put before you is this, like, how do you view yourself? How do you think about yourself, right? Do, do you struggle even wondering like, do I have value? Do I have worth? Do I have a, a purpose and a direction in this life? But also very much related to that question is like, well, how do you view other people as well? Not just do you have worth and value and significance and dignity and all that, but like do the people you interact with, your friends and family members and neighbors and coworkers and the people that are in traffic with you, like do all of those people, like what about them? Like, how do you think about them? But if we zoom out, the even bigger question really is not so much what do I think about myself or what do you think about yourself or, or people as important as those things are, but ultimately like, how does God view us? How does God view you and me? How does God view your neighbor? How does God view the person that's sitting like right next to you this morning or in front of you or behind you? Like, how are we to think about humanity? And how are we to think about like what God has called us to? Not just as individuals, though that is important, but also like, what has he collectively called us too. So let's wrestle through these questions a bit. Like, how do you view yourself? How do you view others? And what I want to look at is these opening couple of verses. I want us to see first and foremost, as we look at verses 26 and 27, it is declaring something that is revolutionary. It is something that would have been revolutionary to the original hearers. Like part of what we need to do when we study the Bible, anytime we open it up, right? is we have to try and understand, okay, well, what's the context? Like this wasn't just written in the abstract, like this is written to a particular group of people in a particular time. And what we're gonna see here right at the outset is this, first and foremost, before we look at anything else, we have been created with dignity. We've been created with worth and value. I, I love the opening words here, verse 26, it says this, here is the dialogue again, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, if you were to go back and if we had taken the time to read all of Genesis chapter one, there would have been this rhythm, this sort of beat, this cadence to the thing, phrases that were being repeated over and over again. It's God says, all right, something gets created. It was so, and then God looks out over it and says, it's good. And in many ways, that's still happening here in day six, but there's some noticeable changes because prior it had just been like, well, God said this, but now in this, we get this little bit of this insight. It's telling us, then God said, let us. And those words are massively important because it's telling us something about how humanity is about to be created. We're literally kind of getting the glimpse in to kind of like peer in and listen in to kind of eavesdrop a bit on this divine dialogue that is taking place. And that word there, those phrase there, that phrase of let us, perhaps an early indication of the Trinitarian theology that we hold as, as Christians of there's God, the father, God, the son and God, the spirit. And it's this dialogue that's taking place. And Moses is the author of this story. And we'll talk about that more in a few moments because it's very important but he's letting us in on like, oh my goodness, like right before humanity is created. And that's another important part of this where it says, let us make man in our image. Man is the Hebrew word Adam. 
And it will be used to name Adam as in Adam and Eve, all right? But at this point in the story, all right, in this kind of overview, Adam is literally the name for humanity. So when I read that and you hear that, it literally is saying, and God said, let us make humankind. Let us make male and female. Let us make humanity. And so at this point, there's something that's being signaled here. Because up until this point, it had been that God said, and it was, it was so. But now the pattern is disrupted. The pattern's broken. It's like, God has done all of the, these things and they're amazing, all right? We celebrate that. It's like, oh my goodness, like there's, you know, there's daytime and there, there's night, all right? Now there's seasons and there's the sun, the moon and the stars. There's things creeping on the earth, which we might not be okay with. But anyway, there's things creeping on the earth, right? And there's the birds of the heavens and things under the sea. Like all of this is taking place, but the pattern breaks. And God lets us in and is like, oh, wait till you see what I'm about to do. It's like this dialogue sort of picturing it as like God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit coming together. Like, oh, like let us make, are you ready for this? You're not going to believe this. And it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So there's something unique that's about to take place here. And down through church history, all right, this phrase that you've probably heard before, we've used it a lot here at, at Crosspoint, are these words, these Latin words, imago Dei. Imago, the image, Dei, God, the image of God. And it's possible that you and I have become perhaps almost like we've heard it so much that we're sort of just um, inoculated almost to it. It's like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that. Yep, yep, imago Dei, I get it. I, I've got that, Let, let's move on. But we need to stop and ask the question, do you and I realize like how revolutionary that statement is? When God as the, the three persons of the Trinity are getting together and like, let us make man in our image, humanity in our image, that statement, oh my goodness, that would have been something that would have to the original hearers would have been like, are you kidding me? Is this, you're saying this is true. It would have been so revolutionary. And friends, if we really understand it, it is revolutionary in our time, in our place. Even if we've heard this passage a thousand times before, there is something so beautiful and so profound that's going on. And what we have to understand, again, if we're gonna understand this idea of image bearers, made in the image and likeness of God, not only you, but your neighbor, any human being that you interact with is, what was the original context? And I told you, and we've looked at this the last couple of weeks, Moses is the author of this story, right? It's God's story, but he's using Moses. Now, if you are familiar with the opening books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, most scholars believe that Moses wrote the bulk of that, all right? And in there, it's a story. If Moses is writing it, well, he obviously comes after Adam and Eve, all right? He, he comes after Abraham. He comes after Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, in fact, Moses doesn't come on to the scene until the book of Exodus. And that book picks up the story after God's people had been living in Egypt. And Joseph had been used remarkably by God to bring flourishing, not only to the Egyptians, but to God's people as well. But I wanna read to you some of the opening verses of the very next book. The second book of the Bible is Exodus. And this sets the scene for what these words of image bearers, Imago Dei, are being spoken into. In Exodus chapter one, hear these words, verses eight to 14. It tells us what happened after Joseph died and after there'd been this, this favor that the Egyptians had toward the Israelites, that didn't last forever. And so hear these words. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh, that's the king, store cities, Pithom and Ramsey. Do, do, you, do you hear the anxiety there, right? Like Pharaoh is not a non-anxious presence, right? Like Pharaoh is very much looking out and he's seeing that, oh, the Israelites are doing what they were commanded to do in Genesis one, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And he looks out and he's like, what if they turn against us, right? I've got all this power and all this might, but man, that's a lot of people. And what if they band together with some of our surrounding neighbors who are enemies? Like this might be, you know, this very fragile thing, his kingdom. And so he begins to put a plan into place and Exodus then continues and says that they were, they set taskmasters over them. And it says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. These verses in Exodus chapter one are doubling down there, right? I mean, in a short span of time, it tells us twice, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so at this point in the story, we're getting the origin account. Moses is writing to a very particular group of people and we have to keep this in mind. And so I wanna ask you like, how do you think, if, if you imagine yourself as those Israelites, had you been living in Egypt, had you been ruthlessly made to work as slaves in brick and mortar, building the store cities, constructing the pyramids, all of these things, like what might that have done to your view of yourself? How do you think you would have thought about yourself? And friends, you would have been shaped, I would have been shaped by our environment, by a particular story. We are all shaped by various stories. We have to try and make sense of our lives by even telling stories. And there's a significant story that is happening. And it's a story that the Israelites are literally growing up in generation after generation after generation that says this, you are not a person. You do not bear the image of God. You are not full of worth and value and dignity. You are simply a commodity to be used by Pharaoh. And the moment you stop being useful, when you no longer fulfill your utilitarian purpose, you are gonna be discarded. You're gonna be pushed aside. You might even be killed because there is no place for you in this world other than just in the realm of production. And if you can't produce like you once did, you are no longer worth anything to us. And so imagine an entire group of people, not just one generation, but generation after generation after generation. Like your parents grew up in this, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and on it goes for hundreds of years that every single person, they're part of the people of God, like the nation of Israel. Imagine how this would have wore on you. Imagine that every single day waking up to the same monotony, make more bricks take the bricks and stack them to make walls, to make storehouses so that the Pharaoh can store his wealth, the wealth you will never be able to touch. You will only build the containers for it. And the moment you can't make enough bricks, the moment you can't reach the quota, the moment you can't do those things, you're literally discarded. 
There would have been no sense of self. There would have been no identity. There, everything would have just been this crushing weight of I have to do this again. Women giving birth to children and that's what they're growing up in. They would have been like, why? Why are we even bringing children into this world? It would have been nothing but oppression, ruthlessly working as slaves. And so it's in this context, friends, that we need to think about this story. It's in this context that we need to realize that the people of Israel were shaped by a particular story, that their origin story, what they were dealing with, it matters. And your story matters and my story matters. Andy Colbert in her book, Try Softer, says this. She's a therapist and she begins to speak of the importance of story. She says, as a trauma-informed therapist, I don't consider stories to simply be abstract concepts or ethereal ideas but instead the neurobiological framework through which we experience life for better or worse. Simply put, stories or the compilation of events and emotions, sensations, ideas, and relationships we've experienced are held in our minds and also in our bodies, and they affect how we see our world. The templates some of us live from confirm that we are relatively safe and loved, and though we are imperfect, we are still capable. And perhaps that's the story you were brought up in. But she says this, others among us have been hardwired through our experience to believe that we are not enough or that we're shameful, unlovable, or any number of other untruths. Your story matters. You carry a story. I carry a story. God's people carried a story for hundreds of years. And then in the midst of that, after they've been delivered from Egypt, Moses is now, you can almost picture like gathering around, like gathering the people together. Like my friends gather around, we've been freed from Egypt and that's amazing and you're no longer slaves. But I, it's not just that you're at neutral. I, I can't wait to tell you about how you were created and how much dignity and worth and value that you have. He literally, what is happening here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is there is a royal naming that is taking place. You are not defined by your past. Your story has a bright future and a hope. You are no longer being seen as only what you can contribute through some sort of utilitarian lens. Well, sorry, Siri, I guess you didn't understand that. Anyway, um, let me try and repeat it. Uh, anyway, um, but there is this, this royal naming that is, that is taking place. And do you see how revolutionary this would have been? For a group of people that all that they'd ever known, slavery, being discarded, not seen as having any worth or value. And though maybe you might look at your story and be like, I don't know if it was that, but don't, don't you carry pieces of that? Wondering if you have worth and, and value and significance and, and there's stories, you didn't even realize it, but it just sort of kind of like got in you somehow. And there's part of you and there's part of me, right? That still feels this like, oh, we've got to prove, we've got to measure up, we've got to do something, we've got to produce more. And what if the God of the universe isn't just speaking to some people thousands of years ago, but he's speaking to you and me, like right here, right now, you're an image bearer. You're made in the likeness of God. I mean, the poetry that emerges, verse 27 is the first poetry in the scriptures here. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. That second line of poetry is just reinforcing the first. But then what I saw this week, one scholar pointed out, it says, then male and female, he created them. And that last declaration, them, is meant to route up to the last word of the first line, which is image. 
Male and female, he created them. That's also the revolutionary truth that's being communicated. This isn't just for the men who had all the power and all the influence in that culture. It's literally saying in male and female, he created them. Well, who are the them? Well, they also, they're the image. Like those words line up in the parallelism that you see in the poetry. It's like, oh my goodness, we're all in on this. There is a royal naming that is taking place. And so friends, how do you view yourself? Will you allow the God of the universe to speak a truth into your life, into your story to say, you've been defined by particular things, but I want to redefine what reality actually is. You're made in my image. But if that's true for you as well, like how do you view yourself? What about this? How do you view others? And we might know enough of just having heard this for a moment, right? Or having heard this account before to be like, yep. And every other person, they're also an image bearer. But let's just press that just, just for a moment. I, th I think it'd be worthwhile to do this, right? Because the tendency of the human heart is to find our tribe and to find our people. And like, yeah, of course they're, they're image bearers. We might give lip service to it, but if we ask ourselves, not only how do you view others, but what about this? What about the person who, and then fill in the blank. We'll go with a relatively easy one, right? What about the person who cuts you off in traffic? Probably has happened to most of us, right? You say, I bless thee, fellow image bearer. You take the spot in front of me, right? Like, is that how we typically respond? Well, no, and I probably can't share how we typically respond because I'd get fired on the stage right now, right? But like, the reality is like, we don't typically respond in, in a way that's like seeing other people. It's so quick that we're, we're so quick to actually like take that away from people, to no longer see them as an image bearer, but just other. So what about the person who thinks differently than you, raises their kids differently than you, votes differently than, than you, has different interests. I mean, we can just go on and on down, down the line. And yet every single person who's ever been on this earth, is on the earth currently, or will be in the future, is an image bearer of God. And what's so hard sometimes as we think about our story too, is like even the people, if you've been in a spot where you've been so grievously sinned against, it's like, well, that person's an image bearer. And how do you reconcile that? Like you, you see where this gets complex very quickly but we have to stop and recognize the truth for a moment too. In the midst of that, that the people we interact with, they are fellow image bearers. For a moment ago, just prior to coming up here, we were singing songs to, to God. James writes about how we use our tongue to praise God. And at the same, the same thing, this, the same part of our body is used to curse fellow image bearers. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. You've probably heard this quote before, but I think it's worthwhile to, to read from C.S. Lewis, who speaks of how we interact with other people. And he speaks of the fact that you and I have never talked to just like, there's, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. He says this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And nations and cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Now, this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. What if we were defined as a, as a community 
that it speaks of that we had this, this level of merriment, not, not because we're just skipping through life as if there's no problems, but a merriment that comes when there's, there's no flippancy, there's no superiority, there's no looking down our nose at somebody else. That when we fill in the blank with the people that even are hard for us to love, that we would still, by the grace of God, see them as image bearers. Imagine how winsome, imagine how countercultural that kind of community would be, where our world is increasingly fractured, it's rhetoric, it's tribalism, it's all of these things. In the church, rather than participating in that, we get to step into those spaces and say, hey, we can disagree on these things. We can have robust dialogue about these things, but yet we can still love one another because you're made in the image of God. I may disagree with you about a million things, you with me, but, but you're an image bearer. Do you see how, like, how radical that would be? I don't know that we think about it that in those terms, but that would be an incredibly radical thing. And I wonder what God might do in and through us the ways he might use us. And so we are created with dignity. But friends, there's not just a royal naming. This gets even better. It goes even further. As, as amazing as that is, what we also see is that we're called to this dominion, but also a dependence. And so as we look at verse 28, it says this, God bless them. So at this point in the story, God is, the Godhead has sort of gotten together and be like, ooh, let's make this, right? And then they do, they create humanity. And now, Humanity is spoken to, where all the other creation is just like, well, here you go, right? In this moment, God speaks and we are hearers. Like we get to hear the word of God. This has been going on since Genesis chapter one. And it's continuing to like this day. God's speaking to us through his word. What a gift that is. Do you see how even uniquely like blessed we are as image bearers? Like, oh, God, God speaks to us and we get to hear from him and understand. And so God blessed them. And God said to them, he gives them this mandate. We'll look at this in more detail in a couple of weeks, but just for now, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God is literally saying, here's the garden, all right? But the whole universe isn't a garden yet. He's literally given them the prototype. And he's like, ooh, I want you to, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And I want you to have dominion. That doesn't mean to abuse the creation, but to steward the creation. I want you to take it further. I want you to subdue it. I put you there. You're actually to exercise some level of power and authority, not to make much of your name, but to bring glory to God and to benefit other people. Like there's good work that's happening. And so we got a royal naming when God said your image bears, but we also have a royal calling. You and I are living, breathing images. We have to revisit this. Perhaps some of you are aware of this, but if you're, if you're not, and even if you are, like it's so good to come back to this, to come back to our origin and realize what's being spoken of here. This is kingdom language, friends. In that time, in that place, whether it be the Egyptians leading their kingdom and the Pharaoh, right? Or you had the Babylonians and different, different kingdoms that would rise up in that greater part of Mesopotamia, doesn't matter the particulars. Here's what they all had in common. A king would conquer new lands and eventually the armies would have to retreat and the king could be back home in his palace doing his thing, living his life, all of that. But what would the king do in order to exercise power and dominion and to subdue people? He would place images made in his likeness around the kingdom, scattered literally about. So when you walk out your front door in the morning and you're getting ready to go to work or go to school or whatever, and you like look out, there would be this reminder, oh, I, I, I don't belong. Like I don't have authority over my life. 
My family does it like that, that king. He's there, he's ever present. No, he's not there in person. There's just this physical representation of him. That thing was there to remind you that you're a slave, that your identity is just in whatever you produce for the king. And if you should try and step out of line, that king will send the armies in and deal with you and your neighbors and there will just be chaos and havoc. And again, that's the world that this is written in. And now how do you hear this? God says you have worth, value, and dignity, a royal naming, but he's also giving you and I this royal calling. And he's saying, you are my image and likeness. I'm the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but in my kingdom, I'm not here to oppress. I'm here to see flourishing, the expansion. You get to play, you get to participate, you get to do this good work. And these are not inanimate objects placed around the surrounding area. You are living, breathing images of God. So this means everywhere that the people of God go, they are showcasing, here's what it looks like when the rule and reign of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords moves into the neighborhood. He has placed not only the people back then, but he's placed you. You are in the neighborhood you are in. You're in the school you're in, the job that you work, the sports team you're on or your kids on or whatever it happens to be, the club you're part of the things you participate in, you're there as an image bearer, which means God has strategically placed you there, not as an inanimate object to speak to oppression, but as a living, breathing person full of worth, value, and dignity to showcase this is what it looks like when God's reign and rule comes in and moves in in the life that is to be found. Do you see how this opens up this whole new world? Is this royal calling Charles Drew speaks of this in his book, A Journey Worth Taking. This task then of showcasing God is, a fun, is so fundamental to what I have been made for that I will not figure myself out very well unless I make it a priority. I find myself, in other words, and ironically, only as I make, quote, finding myself less important than finding and showcasing God. So this journey that sometimes even asking questions about like, how do you view the self? Like that can get very sideways very quickly. But in the biblical idea, God wants you to find yourself, but you don't find it by pursuing yourself and looking inward. No, no, you showcase God in that. Oh, you realize and you remember, I have a royal name. I belong. I've got worth, value, and dignity. I'm not being oppressed by this God. I'm inviting I've been invited into this life of flourishing and I get to invite other people because I've also got a royal calling that everything you do, you are called and you're invited into this life that is loaded with significance. Imagine how that might reshape everything that is on your schedule this upcoming week, the things planned and the things that are not planned. Like you get to bring order out of the chaos. You get to be used by God. And as this passage continues, I told you it's, there's this, we've been created with dignity, but we've been called to dominion, but also dependence. Verse 29, it says, and God said, and then he begins to list out all that he's provided, all the ways he's gonna care for his people. Apparently all the vegetables he's given them to eat, all right, um, as this passage continues. It says, and God said, behold, I've given you. The storyline here from the very beginning is not, you have to go and earn this. Like he gives it. We are simply the beneficiaries of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. The people were brought out of Egypt and even then they were given things to do. They were given the law and the Ten Commandments, but it followed after they were freed. More of like, here, here's how to best set up a culture and a society that would flourish. 
It's the same thing that's happening from the very beginning. Do you see that you're a dependent creature? Image bearer, yes, but completely dependent on the ultimate King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then it tells us in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Up until this point, right? The pattern had been, God said, it was so, and it's good. But at the end of the sixth day, God said, it was so, and it's very good. The pattern breaks. It's it's as if God is literally saying, hey, the Grand Canyon, it's pretty impressive, right? What do you think of that one? Did I did some good work there, right? Like it's good. Like we should all join in and saying that it's good. Mount Everest, never been there. Pretty impressive, never the Grand Canyon either, but I've heard these are amazing things, right? Like all of that, the beach, the mountains, the rivers, the animals, the things that swim in the, the sea, right? The things that, the, the lakes that we have, the air that we breathe, all, all of this, amazing. It's all good. The ever-expanding universe, the cosmos, literally every star, all the, the moon, everything, right? All good. But for humanity, for you, for me, he uses and he reserves this phrase, very good. So, I mean, I love to go visit places, right? Where you're like, oh my gosh, it's so amazing. But this is also a reminder that I literally should be in awe every moment of every day as I interact with any fellow image bearer. That's what God holds out as the most amazing thing. So yeah, the Grand Canyon, mm -hmm, amazing, right? Yosemite, apparently pretty cool, right? Like whatever, you pick your place. But he's like, you wanna know what gets very good? What gets described as that? The person next to you, behind you, sitting in front of you, right? Like you literally could turn right now, there's biblical warrants to turn to somebody right now and be like, you're amazing. And you can do that if you'd like, but like that would be, you have biblical warrants to do that. Like that's what this is telling us is very good. But as we see this, friends, I wish we could end here and be like, cool. Yeah, we know that we've been created with dignity and so is every other person. And we've been called to dominion and to dependence. And like end of story, yeah, we've done it. But the reality is I am an image bearer and my image is tarnished. The Imago Dei has not gone away, but because of sin, because of my lack of belief that I can actually depend on God, my lack of showcasing God and his glory of rightly reflecting his image. Anytime I live for self, anytime I fail to trust God, anytime I fail to see somebody else as a fellow image bearer, what was meant to reflect like a mirror, like there's just more grime, there's, there's, there's more junk that, that's put on it. And I'm not able to do what I was created to do. And I think, you know what, this will clean it up. And I keep pursuing the same things, thinking that somehow it's going to get better. And God is saying, that is never going to bring the cleansing that you need. That is never going to bring the change that you desire. There's only one way that things get changed. There's only one way that the image gets repaired. There's only one way that you and I get to live fully into this. Because we have to recognize the image is tarnished. Like I've got that issue, you've got that issue, every other person on the planet has that, that issue. And the way we experience change is not by us saying, all right, I'm gonna get a good plan together. I'm gonna develop some healthier habits. I'm gonna do these things. And somehow I'm gonna clean myself up. Friends, what we see, and I wanna close with this, we are changed not through our own efforts, but we are changed by doxology. We are changed through worship. We are changed by giving glory to God. This is why Paul would write these amazing words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, and we all with unveiled face. Prior to that, he's spoken of there being a veil. 
He says, anytime the law, anytime Moses is read, there's this, to be veiled means you don't understand the gospel, Paul is saying. You're still thinking it's about up to you. It's, it's what you do, what you contribute, what you produce, and it's making you more and more a slave and the image keeps getting tarnished and it's oppressive. That's not what you've been created for. But when you understand the gospel, there's an unveiled face now. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image. Oh, so we get transformed in the image that is Jesus from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord. Again, we're dependent creatures. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Friends, the way that you and I are changed is not by beholding self. Go read Psalm 115 and you will see, nope, those who make idols become like them. They've got ears, but they can't hear, eyes, but they can't see, mouths, but they cannot taste or speak. You wanna be the inanimate object, right? Sure, you can pursue that. But the more you and I look to Jesus, the more you and I see the ways that he is the ultimate image. He is the one that entered into our world. There was the first Adam who failed, all right? The image bearer, the original image bearer. And then the second Adam that had to come, had to enter in. It was only if God himself showed up as the image that could fix our image problem. This is why Paul would write, we'll close with these verses in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He that is Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I am not preeminent. That's how the image gets tarnished when we think we are, but it is Jesus. Would we look to him? He is the image of the invisible God for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, we become what we behold. Are you and I beholding Jesus and his grace? Are you beholding Jesus there on the cross where everything, all that tarnishes us, all of the grime, all of the sin, all of the shame, it all flowed to him. And what flowed back to us was his righteousness, his cleansing, his spotlessness, a royal robe that was put on us. Keep beholding self and the image keeps getting more and more tarnished. Behold Jesus, the true image. Behold him there with his arms spread wide, dying for you to bring you and I back, reconciling all things through his blood shed on the cross. And as you behold him, all right, that is what we end up becoming. We become more the image we were created to be as we behold him. So what will you behold? I wanna pray for us. After I finish praying, if you've got elementary kids, you can go get them to bring them in as we get prepared to go and to take communion. We get to behold together. We're gonna sing so we can behold together. We're gonna participate in this meal so we can behold together. I'm gonna pray for one of us so we can behold the grace and the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text, for this word. Thank you for this origin story. May you use it to speak truth into our, into our lives. May we rightly see ourselves and others as people that are true image bearers, but the image has been tarnished. May we celebrate, may we behold not, would we not just behold our sin, our shame, the ways we've been sinned against, the way we've sinned against others, but would we behold 
you, Jesus, the true image, the one who lived a sinless life, who died in our place and who rose again. And so God, would you be forming us more and more into your people? May we behold, may even right, may it start right now, would we be changed by beholding you and your grace? So God, do this for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.